You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to the September Journal Club Simulcast podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon, but also tonight by a special guest, Ian Summers. Uh, first of all, how are you, Ben? I am very good. I've had a lovely month break, so thank you for taking care of the Journal Club for me. And I'm very excited to have our dear friend Ian with us, and it feels like it's been too long. It has indeed. Well, welcome back from your slight hiatus. And uh, yes, hello, Ian Summers, longtime friend of Simulcast and definitely longtime friend of mine and Ben's. Uh, Ian, for those of you who don't know, is the director of Monash Simulation and also an emergency physician. But you might have also seen him on the stage at Don't Forget the Bubbles and a number of other conferences where he's popularised a few different things, but including large group simulations. Uh, How are you, Ian? I'm very, very fine. Thank you, Vic and Ben. And you're right, it is far too late for me to be invited. I've been waiting for many, many years and I'm finally here and I couldn't be more thrilled. So thank you heaps. I was just going to say, I spent like two years worried you were going to say no because getting up the courage <laughs> to ask you to the ball, Ian. Some <laughs> uh, listeners, I don't know how this is going to go, but we'll see how it does go. So to give you a little roadmap onto the next little while, we're going to talk about our main paper that we've been having the discussion about on the General Club. And then I've got a couple of little extra papers to get a little sense of what's happening in the simulation literature. But we're going to start talking about our main paper, and that is from Simulation in Healthcare, titled Guidelines for the Responsible Use of Deception in Simulation, Ethical and Educational Considerations by Aaron Colhoun and colleagues. And Ben, I think we're going to kick off with you telling us a little bit about the paper itself. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a commentary style article which addresses the use of deception in simulation and it puts forth a series of considerations, recommendations and guidelines regarding the uses and potential pitfalls of deception. The authors acknowledge that actually deception is a really hard thing to even define, particularly in simulation. And All sims rely to some degree on the establishment of a fiction contract and agreeing to respond to events and information that isn't real. So it becomes pretty murky to try and define and tease out what's deception and what's not. But they draw from Irving Goffman's work to propose that deception refers to an element introduced into a simulation for which there is no clear agreement or knowledge among participants and facilitators regarding its presence, ground rules, or boundaries. And I think this essentially hints that, that there's that fictional simulated space that we create between learners and participants, and that has vague boundaries at baseline. But when one side alters the reality somehow without the consent of the other party, it becomes a potential deception So the article describes deception as being applied in two main ways by facilitators. The first one is omitting information or aspects of the environment, or the second one is providing false information or faulty equipment as sabotage. And they note that how the deception is revealed can also vary. Sometimes it's in the pre-brief, i.e. you warn people, we're going to deceive you. Sometimes it's during the debrief, as in we did deceive you, let's talk about it. And sometimes it's just kept hidden and not acknowledged. 
There's a brief description of some drawbacks and benefits to deception, which essentially seems to come down to this tension between authenticity of experience versus an inherent loss of trust between educator and participant. And the authors acknowledge that it's not just the deception itself that poses those risks, but also how it's facilitated and acknowledged. They describe high-risk situations as ones that include disregarding the learning objectives as understood by the learners, breaking promises or other guarantees made by facilitators, and or introducing confusion regarding what is part of the simulation and what is real. And there are some great vignettes in Table 1 outlining some very, unfortunately, believable examples of types of deception used in simulation. And then the article moves to some pragmatics, firstly starting with key ethical decision-making points. So is it actually necessary? And if it is, do you need to deceive or can you just omit? i.e. what is the dose of the deception needed to achieve your desired results? And then secondly, what is the impact on the participant? Is this an assessment or an educational experience and how is that deception going to affect them in the future? And then thirdly, to consider the emotional context of the case and the level of the resilience of individual learners that they may have. The article then teases out the difference between a deception that still fits within the established ground rules of a sim and argues that it's very different from a deception that creates confusion about what the ground rules are and where the boundaries lie. It's one thing to have a piece of equipment malfunction after presenting a lecture on equipment malfunction, for example, but it's another thing to have a faculty member collapse to the floor and claim they have chest pain. How then to proceed? Well, the authors propose we maintain three Ds being deliberate, disciplined, and discerning when considering sim design and introducing deception, and when it comes to rolling out the deception, to use three Ps, to plan it, to preempt confusion with a go-to sort of clarification phrase, and to prepare for disclosure and how you're going to do it. So in summary, they argue basically, don't use it if you don't need it, and if you do, be careful and ensure deception is something participants consider within the ground rules of play. All right, fantastic. And uh, you actually captured a couple of those little vignettes, Ben, but uh, it might be worth just giving a couple of extras because I think this does get to the point of what is this definition of deception? And one of the things, and I'll get to the discussion in a minute, that came up is, oh, I wouldn't have thought about that as deception. And you gave the one about uh, people ostensibly collapsing to the floor with chest pain as a distraction, as violating those boundaries. But then you said maybe the other one, that uh, we do think is sort of deception, but we tell them some equipment's going to malfunction, and then but we don't tell them which one it's going to be. Were there any others that really resonated with you? As you said, there were believable examples in Table One. Oh, look, I'd have to bring up the table itself, but I think to me there was a big spectrum there in terms of particularly ones that stuck out to me that I hadn't thought about were things like. Um, being deceitful about the learning objectives and saying that we're going to rehearse one thing when actually we're really assessing something else or we're trying to teach something else that's going to remain hidden and is accidentally disclosed. And I think to me, from a personal experience point of view, it's quite remarkable how highly sensitive we are to this sense of being deceived or that the social contract has somehow been breached. So what we do, we run a communication course. And in that course, the start of the day, I say there's going to be no tricks. It's going to be the same sim each time. It's diabetic ketoacidosis. We're not going to trick you. And the case, you know, it's cooked three ways. There's going to be three different ways of doing it. And in the last one, I tell them they're going to practice role transactions before the sim starts. And then during the sim, 
uh, they get a phone call of an extra additional patient that they need to prepare for. And the patient never arrives. They've just got to have some role transactions, reallocate, work out how their resource team is going to move. And interestingly, even in that, even in the debrief, a couple of times, several groups have, have felt quite threatened and said, you said we were only going to be managing one patient and you said there'd be no tricks. And to me, that all seemed fairly above board in that I never introduced another patient. But for them, it clearly violated some kind of internal ethical boundary that had, even though to me, I had advertised why I was doing it, what the learning objectives were, what I wanted them to rehearse. Um, and didn't actually introduce an extra patient. So I think this is really subtle, complex stuff to negotiate intentionally. Mm, can, wow. can I ask, Ben, if I may, why the line, there are no tricks? Why do you use that as part of your brief? Well, because I genuinely feel there aren't and because I uh, use it in phrasing as I'm explaining the fact that there's going to be the same simulation each time and I want it to be the same because we're going to focus on the communication and not the medicine. So tell me, Ian, why do you ask? It's not a line I would think to use and I suspect then you set up for a different contract of fiction and deception or tolerance of deception by saying there are no tricks. I think you raise a good point. Mm. You do raise a good point. So why use it? I could give my answer to that. My answer to that would be that I think, unfortunately, a lot of we've been dealt a bit of a poor hand by previous iterations of simulations where there's been a lot of tricks. So I feel the need to say my sim is not like some of the ones you've had and there's no tricks. But uh, just as Ben indicates, what I think are no tricks may not be what they perceive as no tricks. And I think there is this sort of enculturated hypervigilance now as well, which is very challenging to negotiate. Yes. Absolutely. And I think probably your concept of hypervigilance, if I may, part of what I saw from this as to the warning shot of we may be doing something that is they wouldn't use the word deception, but bordering on some distortion of reality may actually give the participants in a course a we're watching for it, we're watching for a trick. And potentially that might in the same way as people are watching for an early deterioration of a patient and preempt it and actually escalate care above what the current needs of the patient are in the simulation, they may actually see deception where there isn't some and mistrust so much of the things around them looking for whatever trick there is coming or twist in the tail that they may actually produce, I guess, a false positive of here's the deception and mistrust each other. I have my thoughts particularly on that table that Ben talked about, table one of the article of the high-risk events, where there's a series of examples with the scenario goals that they list, where I look through the scenario goal and it says something like to assess the team's ability to address incorrect orders. And I'm thinking, this is great stuff. You know, this is a valid reason to perhaps either conceal a little of the information, which to me isn't deception, that's just part and parcel of clinical care and emergency medicine particularly, which is the field of often my trainees, is that they don't expect to have all the information because that's the clinical reality that they face. But then you get to this section where it says um, the patient's got a dangerous cardiac rhythm disturbance due to high serum potassium levels, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is pretty good. 
And then before the simulation, a facilitator takes one of the learners aside and asks them to deliberately order additional potassium after the team learns about the high potassium level. And I've got in my notification as I've drawn my yellow pen over this journal, repeated comments of WTF in what it is that is setting up the faculty of this to actually, in a way, deviate from what I would think of if I was a learner as the basic assumption of good to this is not the basic assumption of any simulation faculty I've ever worked in, where it's like, you know, we'll we'll get a good gotcha moment here. We'll start pulling out extra potassium on top of the potassium. I just don't see both the intent or the motivation as part of the sim faculties I've been part of, mm. which have all used deception to quite high degrees in a lot of the courses. Um, but without that sort of slightly warped intent of some of the examples that they use of, you know, somebody has been having a clinical um, encounter with the participants prior to the arrival of the simulation course and have used this as a bit of a gotcha moment as well. Yes. Uh, well. I think perhaps either I've been blessed or probably they've overthought some of the ways that deception get used. I think you've just been part of a very ethically high standard faculty, Ian. Uh, and I think it's also fair to say that sometimes these things are they seem like small things at the time, but then when they're presented in black and white like this, you go WTF. But I have a feeling that some of us in the moment are less than perfect in our enactment of it. Um, but it's a nice little segue, if you like, before we get into more comments for me to go through the discussion that we had because I think there was a lot of gold from our discussants online. And thank you, Ben, for giving me the chance to uh, facilitate that discussion. We had a lot of comments, uh, Charlotte Alexander, Dan Houghton, Lisa Paganotti, Aaron Colquhoun, the first author of the article, and Warwick Isaacson and Sarah Jansen's all popped by to make comments. And a lot of them started with things like deception is more difficult to find than they thought because some of the things that they thought of were within the ground rules of simulation got picked up as maybe deceptive uh, under the definitions offered by this article. And this concept of fairness came up a lot uh, that, yes, some deception was okay, but only if it was fair. And clearly that is in the mind of the learner, but it may be differently perceived by the facilitator. And uh, some of the there were some lovely analogies as to how people put this, saying that there was a narrow, toxic therapeutic window. You could have a little bit of deception, but it had to be just the right amount, the Goldilocks amount of deception. Uh, and another lovely analogy about infidelity in relationships as being a useful guide here. Flirting with the rare and unexpected has appeal, uh, but is it worth the longer-term collateral damage? Thank you, Warwick Isaacson, for that uh, colourful analogy. <laughs> that was my favourite. <laughs> it was one of my favourites too. Uh, and I think one of the things that came up too was clearly the importance of expertise, particularly in the pre-briefing and debriefing, in navigating this sense of fear Uh and this idea of entrapment obviously being very destructive. The other thing that came up, and Aaron actually offered this, was that 
clearly the relationship between the facilitators and the learners was very instrumental here uh, and that there is a trust bank account, as it were, between learners and facilitators. And sometimes if you've got a group that you're working with all the time, you've built up trust, they understand that you won't be trying to get them. Uh, but you may dip into that bank account a little bit at times or at least push the boundaries, but you're going to add to the bank account by being very clear and explicit about the fact that you are going to be deceiving them. So I think it is about the the clarity of that. And uh, another quote, Sarah Jansen's actually quoted someone uh, from our 2016 initial paper on this to be absolutely explicit about the intention to deceive. Uh, the only other thing in the commentary that I was unhappy about was no one really picked up on my comments about the structure of the paper. Do we really need three P's and three D's? Uh, it seemed a rather cute way of presenting it and memorable, but I wasn't still sure. Do we actually pull out this article each time we're designing a sim or do we just keep these ideas in the back of our minds? So uh, lovely discussion. I don't know, Ben, you followed it, even if you didn't necessarily have to facilitate it. Any thoughts on the discussion? I did. I love the discussion and I love the language because from a meta perspective, there was lots of description and analogies using different types of interpersonal relationships and high levels of human connection and emotional trust, whether that's a, a romantic relationship or a friendship or something otherwise. And there's actually, you know what, there's a great, there's a great Bluey episode. I'm sure you wouldn't have seen this, Vic, probably, but uh, there's a great Bluey episode of the kids trying to tease out with their dad what is teasing and what is lying. And he keeps bringing up all these, they keep bringing up all these situations where he's told them outright lies. And he's like, no, no, that's teasing. That's different. And they can't work it out. So it was clearly something that we find hard to... Uh, what's the right word? We find hard to sort of differentiate and describe and establish the clear boundaries of, but we sense it very innately in the way that we uh, enact human relationships and that seemed to come through the language that we used to describe how we understood this process. Um, it was clearly something that was very important and I think people enjoyed, much like they did the original paper that we looked at in 2016, which was a letter, you know, sort of a discussion at a conference that had been summarised, um, found it very important and important sort of go-to flag for what we're doing and a, and a safety check for how do we go through this. I think from my perspective, I would have liked, I think, that, I think the lack of a clearer map or go-to kind of guide for this to be a sort of great clear paper to work through the concepts of how to approach deception probably reflects less about the author's intent or ability and more about the fact that it's just really bloody hard to nail it down, I think. So I think I think highlighting the importance of del deliberation, thinking about it, maintaining discipline about it is a, a great start. Yes, and it's good to point out at this point it is a concepts and commentary piece and I think, it, as you say at the moment, that is the state of the science. All right, Ian, well, you've been badged as expert commentator here. Uh, you've offered us a few provocations already. Are there any others yes. you wanted us to wanted us to think about with this paper, or our listeners, rather? Look, I, I'll own up to being perhaps potentially deceptively provocative and 
I did start as I looked at this back in 2016. My own words were quoted back to me, I think by Ben or somebody else, to say, I've just said, look, just don't do it. And that was my initial response in a way. And then I backed back to saying, well, I'm doing it all the time. And how do I reconcile those two? You know, why would you do this? And then as you gain expertise and you, I think, as you see the need for it in things like exploring speaking up and culture and professionalism and how to handle errors in real time and sometimes how to handle the cognitive load of people that are behaving in a substandard way around you while you're having to run a resuscitation or work within a system that's complex. That to me is is a, an ethical need in some of our learners to have them exposed to this in a simulation before they get to the stage of having to do it repeatedly in clinical practice with no opportunity to discover the emotional content of what's just happened to them. If you say to them, I'm going to be wandering in as this person with this odd behaviour, you know, signal everything, it's really upfront. They never get that surprise. They never get the cognitive load. And they probably also never get the true feeling of how to challenge up a hierarchy uh, without having to do it in a position where they're not expecting to have to do it. So the ethics here was very much towards the ethics of harm being done by losing trust. There was less about the ethics of not preparing our learners properly for an environment that is complex, has real complexities and surprises that they need to be prepared for and strategies that they need to put into place when those come around. And that was probably where I saw both the word deception has such negative connotations, but the ethical discussion around it didn't lead to what happens if you don't deceive. Mm. And I think what you're saying is uh, be very conscious of this because to be intentional is the key. Uh, and that goes for both risks and benefits, I think. The only thing I wanted to flag is it, it is one of the things I do like about taking a translational approach rather than an educational approach is that I feel you can have a much higher level of transparency when you're rehearsing something rather than potentially getting drawn into a trap of creating some kind of transformative medutainment experience. And uh, I worry sometimes that over the last decade or so, we certainly got caught up in that drama level. And I think... Mm. I think I can I can particularly see where you come from, Ian, because you've kind of mastered that subtlety to deliver deception well in the experiences that you deliver at a conference, for example, where it is transformative and it is a big experience for a large group of people but also has meaningful learning with authentic representation. And I think my experiences with deception uh, outside of that have tended to be more... <sighs> They've been blunter instruments and the times I've seen deception used, uh, the people who are doing the deceiving have tried to protect the people being deceived by turning up their behaviours to the point where it's obvious and there is no subtlety and there's probably no point because, no, why, would you, why wouldn't you say anything when the, uh, the ICU consultant is about to do something that will clearly kill, kill the patient multiple times um, as opposed to trying to negotiate how are we as a culture in this department and how do we actually deal with this in real life. So I think it's fascinating. Uh, I do 
take heart to the fact that as as many of us move towards increasing the dose of translational emphasis in our sims that that this might be less needed and there might be more mature discussions we can have in different formats about how to negotiate conflict yeah and i also think design is less necessary to create some of these tensions. Example from our last trauma simulation, which was a paediatric trauma that involved both a head injury and intra-abdominal bleeding, and the registrar could not get onto the paediatric surgeon. And that was not, we were not deceiving anyone, we weren't doing that, they were ready, they literally just, their phone was not ringing. They tried five times and they could not get onto them. So we didn't have to create a situation in which you couldn't get onto the paediatric surgeon. It just happened. And you find that also with equipment and environment and all kinds of other things uh, with translational simulation. So I find, in fact, you've got less need for some of this because you've got authentic teams in authentic environments with authentic communication challenges and all this stuff just happens anyway. Yeah, less manufactured. Listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. All right. Well, it seems like a good time to look at a paper called Sharing is Caring because that just seems like a, a nice segue from Deceiving is Bad or Good. Uh, so, our next paper is called Sharing is Caring How EM Sim Cases, that is emsimcases.com, has created a collaborative simulation education culture in Canada. And this is from the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2020 by Kyla Kainers and her team uh, at McMaster. And uh, I know Kyla quite well. She's been on Simulcast, but uh, this is a nice little educational innovation section uh, piece from their journal, which really just describes their setup for the EM Sim Cases website. And the the premise here is fairly simple. They say that, look, simulation is commonly done, but there's actually not that much sharing across institution in terms of scenarios or peer review of those scenarios. And what this results in often is a lot of duplication of effort in writing and reviewing uh, cases. And so I'm going to quote from the paper. They say the creation of EM sim cases was an attempt to shift culture Uh, within simulation education to a collaborative process where contributors are recognised for their work, the work is widely disseminated and it is available for all to use in a free, open access and easily shareable format. So just in case you haven't seen that, it literally is um, emsimcases.com and it's the place where you can find lots of fantastic stuff. So what can you find there? Uh, And, in fact, I was quite amazed. So since 2015, Kyla and her team have been putting together Uh, a series of consistently presented simulation cases. And there's now uh, 80 simulation cases there and over 8,000 average monthly views from a total of 161 countries. Topics range from neonatal resuscitation to end-of-life care. They are quite emergency medicine-based, but I think lots of other um, disciplines could use them as well. Uh, And as they say, initially they wrote most of the cases But now they've got published submissions from 32 individuals from 14 unique sites. So uh, quite the exercise in building this repository of cases which anyone can access for free. And interestingly, as they're writing the paper, they said um, they embarked on audit and reflective exercise to kind of think about what had gone well for them and uh, what they saw as their success factors. And they nominated three things. 
And Ben, I thought you might recognise some of the community of practice principles in here. But what they said was, number one, the things that uh, contributed were the people, the editorial board, and they have some excellent people in that list, many of whom are Canadian emergency physicians and educators. Uh, their processes and the fact that they are really quite rigorous about the fact that they do the, as they describe, expert-driven pre-publication peer review process, uh, which really goes through the simulation cases and says, are the objectives clear? Does the case meet the objective? Is the medical content sound? And then finally, um, having the idea of a fairly consistent template, which you know, you could argue the toss about which is the best template, but having a consistent one is a really good idea. So that's what they nominated as their key things. And then they offer us some thoughts about what they're going to do in the future. But uh, obviously, I'm a convert, I think it's a great idea. And as they said, and I've been the beneficiary of this, it's actually become a publication venue for many simulation educators seeking to create peer-reviewed works of digital scholarship and we published our um, geriatric emergency medicine cases on on the um, EM Sim cases website. So just a nice little description there and a nice little write-up. Um, thoughts? Ben, first. Yeah, I thought it was nice. It's all very Canadian, isn't it? Very nice, pleasant, nice, sharing, egalitarian uh, situation. <laughs> um, to be honest, I was a little bit... <laughs> I was a little bit disappointed in this article in that um, I am a big fan. I love their work. And I, I really would have liked a little bit more digging into the granularity about what they'd learned, how they created it, what didn't work, what they what they learned from, um, whereas this was uh, a relatively straightforward description of their successes. And so I, I, um, I think it's nice. I, I would have liked to hear more from the team because I think they, I am sure from uh, what they have created that there is a lot of street smart learning in creating that kind of online web space. I must admit I agree a little. I, I think this is a valuable website and have used it and certainly used it for inspiration. Like I might not use the case, but sometimes when you're puzzled for content and you're looking through, I'll use and it's some inspiration and rewrite it to my local context. Uh, and it's interesting, isn't it, because even amongst the Canadians there are some differences in terms of do you use millimetres of mercury or KPAs on your blood gases? Uh, are you talking about epinephrine or adrenaline? So sometimes there are losses in translation, it's fair to say, even amongst uh, simulation communities that we would think have a pretty similar healthcare system and uh, scenarios. So good point, I think. All right, well, we might go on to our last paper. How does that sound? Great. All right, well, this one is definitely more of a brain stretch. And uh, just a little trigger warning here, listeners, or actually a bit of relief. We're not going to go into too many statistical methods here because none of us know anything about them. But the paper itself is extremely good and I think worthy of noting. So this is a paper called Cost Effectiveness Analysis of Workplace-Based Distributed Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation Training versus Conventional Annual Basic Life Support Training. And this is from Yiquin Lin and colleagues uh, from the Kids Sim program at Alberta, where some of our other friends, Adam Cheng and Vincent Grant, work. And to give you a little bit, and I'm just going to read from their abstract of context, they say, although distributed cardiopulmonary resuscitation practice has been shown to improve learning outcomes, 
Little is known about the cost effectiveness of this training strategy. So the study assessed the cost effectiveness of workplace-based distributed CPR practice with real-time feedback when compared with conventional annual CPR training. Now, it probably begs the question, what is distributed CPR training? And look, I think there's a few versions of this, but uh, their definition is this is the sort of low-volume, high-frequency training so something like five to ten minutes, but it's done once every month. And typically it's a kiosk or a work or a station that delivers automated feedback rather than a human instructor. And I think the ones they used in this study are the QCPR, but also the LADL uh, resuscitation quality improvement program is another example of that. And there's quite a lot of literature that suggests this works better in terms of people's getting both initial performance of a higher level, but also better attention because it's done more frequently. Uh, so at this point, I'm just going to ask Ian and Ben experience of the distributed CPR approach, or are your institutions sticking with the annual CPR refreshers? Ben, do you want to take this first? Yeah, sure. Well, I work in two different institutions and they are on both extremes of the spectrum. So one has the uh, trolleys uh, around where you can just log in at any stage and get automated feedback. And uh, one has a extremely overworked uh, pediatric education nurse uh, trying to do everybody's competencies and working very hard in the process. Uh Vic, you probably know from discussions I've had with you as I've tried to set up the SIM service that I have run a mile from BLS. And so I actually couldn't answer. I think it's probably done by nursing educators in a standardised BLS course. Um, but I try to have as little as possible to do with this uh, because it is so labour-intensive and because using a SIM centre for this sort of thing is, is really the ultimate of using a sledgehammer to crack a walnut in terms of the expense and the expertise that we have to do other things. So I'm embarrassed to say I don't actually know. So just I shouldn't ask you if your own CPR training is up to date. That was the thing that crossed my mind. Yeah, mine mine is, I think, um, but from teaching rather than anything else. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. Just to wind back a little bit, I'll just describe the two groups and what they actually did. So they had a control group and they had something that would appear familiar to most of us, a standard four-hour classroom-based BLS led by a certified instructor with some didactic teaching of video, some practice CPR and AED practice and a written and skills test. Uh, the intervention group, they were orientated to the equipment. Um, they still had some online learning, but they were required to do CPR at least once a month within the workplace on one of these CPR training stations equipped with objective real-time feedback. And they've in there is that table one you referenced there, Ian. So there's once a month for five minutes. So it really is a kind of drop in, do it, and then keep on going. And what they were looking at were two things, just as you said, uh, how effective is the CPR? And then is this a cost-effective way of training? And uh, this is a group, and clearly the first author and others have a lot of expertise in how you calculate these um, cost-effective analyses and how you cost, cost out resource use. And I wrote myself a little note here saying, kids, don't do this at home without your parents. This is not the kind of thing 
the average simulation educator can do. You really do need expert assistance. And um, to their credit, this is a simulation team that have managed to collaborate with those that have. But look, having looked at the table, I think I can understand enough of it to say they looked at what are the costs of the equipment, the staff time, the instructor time, the facility time, and really started to work out how did this add up for each of these two groups. And they came up with something called the incremental cost effectiveness ratio. And that was how much does it cost to have one excellent CPR provider to implement the distributed practice model? Um, so if you think about it, that's almost like the number needed to treat. You know, how much is it going to cost for have us to have one more really excellent CPR provider as measured by the kind of things you're talking about? Uh, to go back to Ian's point, none of this was based on patient outcomes. This is purely based on people's competency measurement. And to give you the, and there's a number of statistical methods in here, including a Monte Carlo simulation, which is not nearly as much fun as you might think. And what they came up with was, look, if depending on exactly how you cost it out, it's actually cheaper to do the distributed model and it's definitely more effective to do the distributed model. On one of their analyses, if you paid for some of the um, staff time, it ended up being about the same cost, but you definitely got more effective CPR results. So, look, I think this there's a couple of reasons why I chose this paper. One is just the absolute rigor of doing this and not all of us can but I'm so pleased when simulation programs do that have access to that kind of expertise and who have got the commitment to do it because I think it gives a lot of guidance to the rest of us about whether we should be making some of these decisions or not without having to try and struggle to do our own business cases and cost effectiveness and uh, also just because I really think people need to understand that you know, human instructor costs, coming back to Ian's point, simulation centres may be a sledgehammer for teaching BLS, but so are expert nurses and nurse educators uh, when we know that actually machines can give really good feedback on things like CPR and recoil and those sorts of things. We really need our nurse educators and medical educators to be doing things that capitalises on the expertise that they have. So, uh, Ben, any other thoughts? Yeah, look, I really, I really like this paper because, as you described, it is a an important uh, voice in the conversation and a part of the conversation that we're not very good at having or articulating or understanding based on sort of the average person in the simulation community. So I really was excited to see that there are, are people out there who are doing this really important work. And, and I think to me, this paper is a great call to arms to say, look, if we're looking at the data that we have, we're not doing this well, we're not doing this efficiently, uh, and it's costing us more money to get a worse result, which is a very useful argument to have available if you are trying to advocate for genuinely both improving the efficiency of your service and also improving the quality of care that we're giving our patients. Mm. And just so people know, there was some actual patient outcome analysis done of uh, the RQI program in Dallas, Texas, which showed quite favourable outcomes in terms of their cardiac arrests, but different methodology again. I'd have to agree with you, both of you. I, I actually really enjoyed the construct of this paper as to what they were trying to assess and what they were trying to deliver. And I'm I'm hopeful, Vic, that you chose this partly so that you could understand the Monte Carlo method to apply as an overview of cost effectiveness of um, online accreditation um, 
across you know hospital networks is the next thing um or the other types of activities which seem a big cost is the participant salary you know it's whether or not you do these types of activities in your home time uh, or in your paid time is a big determinant of actually the real cost for the network uh, of what you do with something like an online accreditation or online BLS training or whatever else it is. Um, but I, I have to respect what they, what they set out to do and what they tried to do. And this type of activity is great ammunition for us um, when we're trying to either advocate for a change in what we do um, or alternatively to try and maintain positions where we don't get involved in work where there isn't cost effectiveness of something that is very valuable both for nursing educators or for simulation centres, as you say. Mm, yes, fantastic. All right, well, Ben, that might be your cue to give us uh, the little introduction for October, although we're slightly into October now, but tell us what the October Journal Club is going to be about. Yeah, absolutely. So we're coming up to the end of the year and uh, we are going to look at a paper that I think some people will find challenging to critique. Uh, so I'm looking forward to us uh, looking at that together. Uh, the article is by Benjamin Kerry, Stephanie Boyd at Al, and entitled Developing a Profile of Procedural Expertise, a Simulation Study of Tracheal Intubation Using Three-Dimensional Motion Capture, and it was published in Simulation in Healthcare 2020. Uh, so uh, we are going to look at probably something that we have, certainly I have under uh under proposed, I guess, for previous journal clubs. So I'm really excited to take that in a little bit of a new direction and move away uh, from debriefing and other things and looking at other ways that it, simulation can be used, particularly to map out different types of expertise. So we'll be looking forward to that discussion. I'm proud of you, Ben, moving away from. Debriefing. Well, you know, it has been almost a year. I don't. I. I, I have tried all year. We, I don't think we've had a sort of. <laughs> Bay, you know, band or debriefing paper this year for the monthly discussion. Might have been Yeah, one. no, well, Might I agree. This is this is exciting and mm. it's one who's loosely aligned with uh, our institution's laparoscopic simulation program. It's very instructive for me to start thinking about learning curves and uh, how we find what makes a difference. All right. Well, thank you both for an entertaining conversation and particularly thank you, Ian, for being our guest, provoca provocateur and uh, discussant this month. It's been lovely to have you along. Really, no, that's, that's fine. Uh, look, thanks so much for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And just a reminder for Simulcast listeners, go along to that uh, discussion, uh, www.simulationpodcast.com. Uh, also feel free to rate us on iTunes and uh, drop us a line for any other thoughts about what you'd like to cover uh, and Simulcast. We're happy to host those discussions and look at those papers for you. So this is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. <laughs>